So this feels very weird to say, especially after everybody prepared me for Voyager, but I'm really liking season four so far. It's pretty good, I have to say. It's not Next Generation. It's not Deep Space Nine. But this is pretty good TV. I'm really liking this. I think that there's a good handle on the characters. I like Seven of Nine as a character very much. I think Jerry uh, Taylor is figuring out the kind of show that she wants to be making now a little more than she did in season three. Which is TNG. Let's be fair. Yeah, yeah. But as a... There are there are worse shows you can do as a model. Let's face it. Yeah, I, uh, that's certainly true, and I I think that you know if you recall way back when we talked about Caretaker, I, I believe I said in that podcast, you know if if you don't like Voyager, just wait a couple seasons yeah. because it's about four different shows. And I think you're starting to see that yeah. this is a very different show than it was in the first or second season, and. I don't know if this is my favorite version of the show. I, I think that the the Brian and Braga seasons are actually the ones that I consider to, to be the strongest and the, the Kenneth Biller-led season, the last season, to be the weakest one. I, I'm liking season four definitely more than I liked season three. While the, the problem I always have with Voyager in, in general is that you know, and this has become a cliche on our podcast at this point, but I like shows that are more than the sum of their parts. And I don't think Voyager is more than the sum of its parts. I don't know that that's necessarily a problem. But you well, know, if I, if I think back to the third season of this show, I think of individual episodes that I liked. But if I really, if I had to come up with a coherent opinion about the season as a whole, I, I would have pro, I would have trouble coming up with one. I think. I mean, this is the weirdest damning with faint praise, and I know I am grading the show on the curve, but. The show is now the sum of its parts. There are times when it's less than the sum of its parts. Okay, I see what you mean. Yeah, I, I'll go with that. I the show has a strange problem with consistency, and the show. And what I mean by that is not tonal consistency or anything like that, because I think both of us appreciate a show that will change tones. I mean, we're going yeah. through that with the X Files right now, a show that sometimes changes tones several times within the same episode. Um. Really, what it comes down to for me is that, you know, there is a little bit of a lack of attention to detail with Voyager in terms of character motivations. And especially, I think, like, it, it's funny because this was always a point of contention. And once again, we have uh, shuttles cropping up in, in these two episodes. <laughs> but, like, Voyager should have, I think, negative, like, negative 10 shuttles by now. Yeah. Um, and that has always been sort of like a cliched. I don't even want to use the word cliched, but it's always been a very sort of like standard criticism of Voyager. Like that is on the checklist of criticisms that you have when you're writing your anti-Voyager blog post or comment. You know, they always went through a bunch of shuttles and there, I think at one point I actually looked this up and someone actually went through and like calculated every single shuttle they ever lost and how many shuttles they, they actually had by the end of the show. And it was like <laughs> negative 48 shuttles or something, but I don't maybe this is heretical, but I don't care. I, I was going to say I am. This is weird, but I don't I didn't notice that until you mentioned it. You know, like, yeah, they lost a bunch of shuttles. And maybe part of me is just going from a TNG and DS9 perspective where they lose a shuttle where while they are in a position where they can easily get a new shuttle made there are industrial replicators available to them um and yet 
you know, I don't think either of those shows had you losing shuttles all the time when they were a more expendable resource. But either way, yes, it's true. They don't have industrial replication capabilities on Voyager that we are aware of. And so a lost shuttle is a lost shuttle. Maybe a damaged one can be repaired, but, you know, there is such a thing as beyond the pale. But I don't know. It just... The reset button doesn't really bother me as much as it bothers some people, I guess. And, you know, again, we've talked about how it is a kind of lazy form of criticism to just point out the plot holes and say, this is crap, there's a plot hole, you know, things don't add up 100%. And, you know, certainly there are legitimate criticisms to make on that. Certainly Voyager does not do as much with its setting of being in the middle of nowhere as they could be doing, but... At the same time, I mean, for something like uh, Nemesis last week, you know, that that plot line did resolve itself in a different way than it would have were this an Alpha Quadrant planet, were this a planet where Federation resources would be able to be tossed against this and to fix the situation. Yeah, yeah, I agree with all of that. And I think that, that Revulsion is is kind of a good example of that. And, and also, frankly, the next episode, The Raven as well, because, you know, I'll borrow a line that you like to use a lot. You know, here, here are two more episodes that, that feature Delta Quadrant assholes. Like, yeah. you know... If there's one, if there's been one consistent quality that that maybe Voyager fell into accidentally, I don't know. Uh, it is that the Delta Quadrant is populated by species that are just not very nice. And you know, Revulsion is an episode which very heavily features the Doctor in a, in a very good role, I think. And this is the yeah. this is the start or perhaps the continuation of a plot line or a character beat. That, that we've seen crop up even as early as something like Heroes and Demons from the first season where the, the Doctor doesn't really have, and even like real life from the third season, for example, where he's experimenting with, with holog- holog- holography, I guess the word is. Um, and this is kind of a, a natural outgrowth of that where now he is encountering a holographic entity, life form, whatever you want to call uh, uh, this person that is not created by the, the Voyager crew, is is not created by the holodeck. And this is the first indication I think we have that, uh, you know, another alien species uh, has created holograms to, to this sophistication. Yeah, and which in and of itself doesn't surprise me, but it's very interesting. The, I mean, the, ma- the major theme of this is that um, the Doctor is somebody who can point to certain ways in which he was, uh... See, I'm about to use the word oppressed, and yet that doesn't even seem... That seems, like, way too strong of a word for what happened to the Doctor. He was just kind of ignored. Uh, You know, people didn't really think of him. He was, you know, an emergency thing that was intended to be a... You know, a temporary thing. And then, as he started to need to be on all the time, he demanded more rights, and... While they may, you know, while they may have been slower than he would have liked in giving that to him, certainly Janeway and everybody figured, no, you're right. We we overlooked this. We dropped the ball on this one. Uh, we didn't do something right. We didn't live up to our ideals. And as he points out in this episode, by this time he is treated as a full member of the crew. Now he needed to get certain things up to, you know, he needed to. And now, in certain ways, things such as the mobile emitter have gone very far towards helping him get that full existence because it is very difficult to have somebody as a full member of the crew when they are confined to one room for the most part. But 
at the same time, everybody is more open-minded. They, again, it just seems like an oversight and a fuck-up on the Federation's part, and the crew of Voyager have stepped up to their oversight. On this crew, the Isomorph, as I think he's called, yeah, never had a chance. I don't, you know, the Doctor is... Sounds very naive when he's saying, well, you should just ask them nicely for your, you know, and they'll give it to you. And, you know, this is, I mean, this is something that exists in the way that, you know, different minorities deal with uh, their oppression, right? Like you, um, you know, some communities are more tolerant and accepting and open and some are much less. I mean, uh, you know, in my personal life, I was living in Portland where I didn't, you know, nobody even noticed that I was gay. It was very accepted and stuff. I'm in New Jersey right now, and I just finished up a job where, like, every day I'd be talking to, you know, people, and then there'd be just a random homophobic or transphobic comment, which, like, never fucking would have happened in Portland where I was. And it's just like, you know, that that there are very different situations, and you get almost shocked by how you know how different cultures are in that way yeah i think the the doctor is very almost shocked that you know how bad could it have been that to bring the isomorph to this point well as he you know we never i think it's very smart on the episode's part to never show us how bad things are for the isomorph we don't know whether he was indeed mistreated as badly as he said or not i mean either way he did cross a line but that line never would have been e- – even at the Federation's worst, they would have never even approached that line. Maybe. Oh, uh, are we going to see some more stuff? <laughs> it's possible. Yeah, I mean I, I agree with you, but I, I think that, that what's so interesting about Revulsion and, – and I, I do want to call out again. This is a Lisa Klink script and uh, you know we, we are on the – I think we are on the record as, as Lisa Klink fans at this point. Um, although I don't think this is her strongest episode, it's quite good. Hmm. And, you know, the Doctor is strange, right? I mean, as you say, like, when the Doctor was first activated, the crew kind of just treated him like a tricorder. They didn't really think about the fact that he was a person with agency and, and dare I say, rights. And when that was pointed out to them, they were, I mean, I think Janeway in particular was a little dismissive slash annoyed at the doctor, especially in the first season. She has come around, but she came around more slowly than a lot of other people. And let's not forget that it was the intercession of Cass that really yes. talked Janeway into realizing exactly how badly Janeway was treating the doctor. And, and I think that does fit with Janeway's character as she was in the first season. Remember in the very first episode, she's talking about how she never really got to know her crew, you know, and whether she's talking about Voyager or earlier is kind of ambiguous. But, you know, she I think she is the kind of person who is, number one, going to get so caught up in the scientific details about something. So she is really more interested in the technology behind the hologram rather than you know, the person behind that. And number two, she is somebody who is in a very difficult and stressful situation. And so I think there is a degree of, Jesus, I have to get all these people home and you want your rights too out of this? Like, come on. Like, I am I have enough on my plate. Yeah, certainly. But Now, I, but... 
the show makes it clear that that's incorrect of her. And again, she does come around. She does come around. And I, I think the doctor's journey, you know, throughout the first three seasons, moving into the fourth season of the show, is one of the stronger character arcs in the show. And, and I think that, you know, he has come a long way. This This kind of episode is a perfect you know, argument for giving him the mobile emitter because this kind of episode mm-hmm. just would not have been able to have been done uh, easily. I mean, they could have probably hand-waved it away as, oh, well, there's holographic emitters all over the alien ship, and so we can transfer over there. But you have to do that, right? That's going to take at least, yeah. you know, a couple minutes of screen time. They don't have to really deal with that anymore. So, and and there is a little bit, I think, of, of schadenfreude in the Doctor as well, right? Like, he is... Not necessarily gloating, not necessarily taking delight in this guy's misfortune, but there's a little bit of like, well, I don't have these problems and you should, (laughs) like you said, you should just talk to them or you should just do this. And I think that what's more, what, what is so indicative of that is the, um, the aesthetic of the alien ship versus the aesthetic of Voyager. And this is something that I don't think we've ever talked about, but Starfleet's aesthetic is is super weird. Like it's very homey, it's very comfortable, you know, not always of course, like but even the Defiant had carpet. I mean, you know, it, it's it's carpet and woods and soft lights and it, it you know, there's there's beds and furniture and all kinds of stuff all over the place and plants, et cetera, et cetera. You know, because to a, to a real degree, I think that people in Starfleet think of their ships as home. And they want to make their home comfortable because this is their home. This is where they live. Whereas the alien ship in this episode doesn't seem like the most pleasant place to be. And you can really see the the differences in the alien uh, uh, psyche probably where part of the reason why this isomorph was being mistreated was just these people were on a really shitty spaceship in a shitty job. And it's not right, certainly. And I think that there are elements to it which are are objectionable but you can kind of understand it at the same time yeah i get what you mean it's 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 to a degree it's a weird cultural clusterfuck in a way that creates the situation um i mean we we have certainly seen the 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 franchise in general has done a lot towards you know showing what klingon ships look like and showing what a cardassian space station looks like and you know showing what the bajoran planet is like and all of those things uh and comparing and contrasting that to the federation stuff and as much as you can say well tng was you know a luxury cruise ship it was the flagship it was the sexiest ship in you know starfleet at the time but you're right there is a degree of comfort because why not like you might as well be comfortable you might as well enjoy yourself you might as well have little concerts on the ship while you're at it you know you might as well put on plays because you're going to be here and these are your there is a definite emphasis on starfleet vessels uh to create a sense of community to create a sense of home to create a set you know you're all comrades you're all shipmates you're all kind of friends you all have the same goals and the same you know worldview and you know there are a lot of philosophies you have in common so you might as well be comfortable there mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I think that's right. And I think, of course, you know, that that's really just to, to promote morale. But at the same time, I think that yeah. that really does speak to the way the Federation operates. And I think it speaks to that they to, think morale is important to promote. Yeah. Yeah. And and also that, that you know, frankly, the, the doctor is given the space to also indulge in these things. I mean, mm. you know, he is someone who, as he says in this episode, has hobbies, has interests, has pastimes. Um, you know, he is someone who created a holographic family a few months ago. Yeah. You know, he's given a lot of latitude to, to do things that uh, are not necessarily due to the fact that he is the doctor. Right. And I like yeah. that. And I think it, it, it's, you know, part of what I think this episode is, is, is for is just to remind us of how far the doctor has come. Yeah, no, the isomorph doesn't even get the opportunity to have a little fish. You know, he has to hide that. I mean, the it is clear that the doctor is, you know, it 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 is, you know, privilege is a term that would not have been really talked about in terms of this episode when it aired, because I think that's a far, far more recent, uh, you know, construct. But I mean, the term was around, but I don't think it had yeah. percolated outside of academic circles by that. You know. Yeah, 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 yeah. And very niche academic circles at that time as well. But um you know, it, it's interesting the ways in which, you know, yes, the doctor didn't have the privilege of being a biological life form, and but certainly he has privilege from being a Federation hologram versus this isomorph. And it's sad that I don't remember his name, but then again, the doctor doesn't have a name, so maybe that's that. Yeah. I don't know if they ever gave his name. It was weird. Like, I think he said... Um, he I a- looked... Well, well he, I looked up the actor on IMDb and it had a character name. I just didn't write it down. Yeah, but I don't know if they actually said it in the episode, okay. which which is interesting because the isomorph does make a point of asking what the doctor's name is. And he seems surprised that the doctor doesn't have one. So that indicates that he has one. But maybe he never said the, it. I think maybe in the distressed call at the beginning, he says his name. Maybe, yeah. You know, this is so-and-so, I'm an isomorphic life form or whatever. It's possible, yeah. I mean, there is even a, I guess to show how far the Doctor has come is the conversation he has with Janeway. When he hears the distress call, he's immediately like, oh, we've got to go and I'm going to be there. And, you know, Janeway immediately, because, you know, she is the captain, says, oh, you didn't get the promotion today. Like, oh, you're going to... You're going to do an away mission because, yes, it is a breach of protocol for the doctor to suddenly call an away mission. But at the same time, she does indulge him. She does recognize that, yes, this is something we have to do and you are the best person for the job. And, yeah, why don't you lead this one? You can go on it now. You know, it's a again, maybe that's something she wouldn't have done in the first season. Um but she is at that point now. You know, that's how she would treat any member of the crew who Im- who immediately started making those kind of plans. Yeah, sure. Well, I think it is. You know, I, I think it just speaks to the doctor's... Yeah, he's, he's both a little bit full of himself and uh, eager, let's say. Yeah, no, and she... I mean, she recognizes it's coming from just a place of enthusiasm. He's, you know... He he is really excited to meet somebody who's like him. He he does have the opportunity to do something that, you know, a year ago he wasn't able to do. And so, you know, it's it's almost like a you know, it's funny in which the ways the doctor is, you know, thinks of himself as above everything and smarter than everybody and the ways in which he is a little kid about things. Yeah, yeah. So I guess the last thing to talk about um, before we move on to, to the other plot line in this episode, which, okay, is, 
the one thing that I don't know, I, I don't know if this is a, a, a it's not a massive criticism of the isomorph storyline, but I think that his sort of just very bog standard sociopathic stalking mm. of the crew and Bellana is it's it's effectively done. It's nothing great. And you kind of know where it's going to go. So that's the one part of the episode that for me always sort of like, I I think you could have probably had this episode if the crew had actually died in an accident, like the isomorph said, because they don't ever really do anything with the fact that the isomorph is sociopathic or a murderer. Well, beyond the fact that he tries to murder Balana at the end, if it had been an accident, he would have. But I you mean, don't. I, but that's what I'm saying. Like, you don't need him to do that. There's, there's, no, almost, there's no real point to it. I mean, I almost feel like, again, here's my habit of rewriting an episode. It might have been interesting if there had been an accident, but the isomorph rather than actively killing the crew, just refuse to do something. Like, let's say the life support is failing and it's his job to fix it and he doesn't and he refuses to and all the crew die you know yeah so yes he has effectively caused their deaths he's allowed them all to die but it's not you know stabbing them with a hammer like he does right yeah yeah that could make sense and I, you know and it does sort of tie into his dislike of of organics and that i mean i will say that the the little you know monologue he gives to balana when yeah. he's talking about the disgusting organics and she she's just kind of like all right then uh <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think that's effectively done. I just wish that they would have done a little more with it. And maybe yeah. the way that they maybe the way that Lisa Clint could have done more with that storyline or that character beat is to completely jettison the Harry Kim wants to have sex with Seven of Nine storyline because what is this? Uh this is just like him proving that he's heterosexual, uh which is not working. I mean, there is the one like, when he's talking to Tom Paris, and Paris is like, you know, gee, you know, first it's Seven of Nine, like, before that it was a hologram lady, like, you always go for the unattainable, and it's like, why is he going for the unattainable? There, that That's because he doesn't actually have to deal with it, you know? He, he, he doesn't actually want to copulate with a woman, so he, the women that he fixates on are ones that are impossible goals, and that way he can go through the motions of having a heterosexual crust without actually having to deal with it. Because when Seven of Nine does offer, he freaks the fuck out. Yeah, I don't know. I <laughs> I mean, yes, certainly we can make jokes about Harry Kim being gay I know. All, all day long, but... And we probably will do it many more times I'm sure we will. is over. <laughs> but I think that, I mean, I don't know. I... I, I, I I struggle with the scene with Seven of Nine and Kim in the mess hall because, I mean, I don't know. I can see how Harry Kim would be, uh, you know, sort yeah. of <laughs> like, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, well, he's a little more of a romantic than she is at this point. Like, she is just viewing it kind of as a, uh, you know, oh, well, humans have this biological need. I might as well try this because this is what humans do. I'm going to try and eat in the next episode. Like, I'm doing all of these things. I'm playing with Clay. I'm going to sleep with Harry Kim. Why not? You know, and, and it's a very different perspective than he's trying to go go at that. Well, you know, too Har- much. Harry Kim is a very nice boy who loves his parents <laughs> and, you know, has had very, very nice sex with his fiance Libby. And 
he's a very i mean he's an attractive man and there's nothing physically upsetting about him uh but you know charitably speaking i think seven of nine is like a fucking supermodel and she is very very intimidating and so Mm. you know i don't know that i necessarily like the trope that it's falling into and i don't necessarily like the 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 weirdness of harry kim but the seven of nine part of it I like because at least she's just kind of like, yeah, all right, why not? I mean, it would make sense that she would view it very transactionally, very scientifically. Yes. And I don't know why Harry Kim doesn't go for it, but I think at least, I don't know, for, for me, it comes down to like Voyager gets criticized a lot for not being very character focused. But to me... I think this is the primary difference between, say, Harry Kim and Tom Paris, because if Tom Paris was in that situation, Tom Paris would have ripped his clothes off immediately. Yeah. Yeah. He would, you know, he would be a lot more smooth and suave about it. And, you know, maybe he would be the one saying, well, you know, humans do this. Why not? (laughs) Um, (laughs) This feels very gross to be talking about for Star Trek, though. Like, I don't know. It's I've never. Star Trek in general has never been great with sex, and I've never felt really comfortable talking about Star Trek and sex. I don't know. It's it's a, yeah, I mean, it's definitely an issue, and I think that, I don't know that we're really equipped to talk about it right now, but... Uh, There's something a bit... It's very juvenile. Yeah, I I was about to say, it feels like teenagers, you know, fumbling with their first you know, steps into sexuality and, you know, that's an awkwardness and we've both lived through that and most of our listeners have gone through their, you know, experiences of that, but it's also like... Not me, I'm asexual. Well, good for you. Um, But you still had certain, you know, steps that you took to get to that identity. And, um, you know, the, the, the point is... It was appropriate at the time, but now I'm 35, and for me to talk to a 16-year-old about their first stirrings of sexuality would be inappropriate. And so it feels inappropriate to be talking about Star Trek dealing with sex, because it's just kind of starting that. Yeah, I I, I, I see your point, and I, I think it goes back to, to what I said a couple of podcasts ago. I, I don't remember exactly what episode it was, because time is all blurred together. It's 2018. Um, that, you know... The, the the sexual philosophy, the sexual politics of Star Trek have become uh, more and more, you know, wonder breadish, uh, you know, in the in the past few years. And I think that we have come a long way from the sort of like hedonistic sex planet stuff of TNG season one. Yeah, that was informed a lot by Roddenberry, as I said before. And, you know, Star Trek in terms of sexuality is a product of its time. And it's also, it's not necessarily a product. And, I, I, you know, the weird thing is, too, like, part of the reason why Star Trek always had sort of a juvenile or immature portrayal of, of human sexuality or sexuality in general is, as I said before, TNG and DS9 were syndicated, and so they just didn't know when it was yeah. going to air. Uh, they didn't have that problem with UPN, um, but they still forgot that or it had become such an ingrained way to to write sexuality in Berman era Star Trek that they just could not break out of that box uh well we should move on but but the last thing that I want to mention briefly is that Tuvok finally got a promotion so so good, good for, for him. him and I did I, I did like that scene 
I was going to say, I loved the opening. This is one of the my favorite openings because it's just everybody hanging out and you have a bunch of conversations that don't really have anything to do with the episode. This trading with the Eurotibians or whatever, I don't think we even see that, right? Like, it just happens off screen. Um, we have a two-minute confirmation that, yes, uh, Parlana is happening or Barris or... Toritom, or I. What's the fan couple nickname for that? I don't think they had one because no one actually like shipped them. So <laughs> Tom, Tom and Tom and Bellana were were no one's OTP. I'll just put it that way. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, I forgot about that, but I, I did just want to go uh, about that scene because yeah, if you want to talk about a sort of like Hollywood, very cliched version of human sexuality and romance, that was not a good kiss and no one ever should kiss anyone like that. Like you should not say shut up and kiss someone that just should never <laughs> happen unless you're role playing that. Just don't do that. Yes. Do you think people like role play the Tom and Bellana kiss scene like in their, in their personal lives? I'm sure it's happened at least once. Uh, yes, but they will never talk about that. Um, also, that episode was apparently three days ago, so we had Nemesis in the meantime. Like, this has been a very busy four days for Voyager. It has. It has. <laughs> well, it's going to be uh, uh, even busier in a minute. But before we move on to the Raven, I just want to take an opportunity to remind all of you that Trek About is listener supported. If you would like to give us a little bit of money, we do appreciate it. Any amount helps please go to patreon.com slash truckaboutshow and give now. All right, let's talk about The Raven, which is important for a very particular reason that I wonder if you picked up on. Is it that it's a Brian Fuller episode? You picked up on it. I picked up on a thing. Um, I wouldn't have... I don't know if I necessarily would have noticed if I hadn't noticed the credit, although I don't know. I... I, I that's that's very tautological of you, Richard. <laughs> no, that's you know that that's that's fair to say, but it's you know like for example, we're watching the X Files, and there were you know we can notice when it's a Darren Morgan episode, even if we're not watching it. We've said a lot of like this is obviously you know trying to be a Darren Morgan episode or influenced by that. Like I'm not sure that Fuller has a signature style at this point that he's figured out, but I'm also not sure if I personally... He was 12 when he wrote this episode, so yeah. Aw, what a a young scamp. Um, I'm not sure if I know his style well enough to be able to make that point to it. So as somebody who is more familiar with his work... I mean, I wouldn't say I'm... I guess I'm more familiar than his work than you, but I don't really think I am. (laughs) I mean, I watched like... Dead Like Me, I watched Wonderfalls, I watched the first season of Pushing Daisies, and that's it. Okay, so we're actually equally at the same yeah, point. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> I'm not a Brian Fuller fanboy. I found it very offensive. <laughs> you didn't watch Hannibal? Wow. I watched um, the first episode of Hannibal, and I was like, eh. <laughs> um, I mean, for one, there are no you know female characters with traditionally male names in this episode, so that is part of the... Uh... But anyway... Um, Yes, but if you consider Seven of Nine, you can kind of make an argument for that a little bit. No, I, I, no, I'm I can't. Just, no, you can't. I don't know how I feel about this episode. I mean, I'm with you. Like, it's a Brian Fuller episode. I don't think anybody in 1997 would have been falling all over themselves to say, wow, this Brian Fuller guy, who is he? This yeah. is a wonderful episode. He's never written anything before. And 
I guess IMDb was around back then, so maybe people could have gone there and checked it out. But yeah, I, I don't necessarily think that this episode in particular is very indicative of where his his writing style or his career would go. Uh, it's um, fine. Like I think that's... it's it's a well written episode and it's well plotted. Um, but I don't know. Is it more than that? Not really. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, and I, I, I guess we're do you know in 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 our other podcast tuning in on the X Files, we are kind of doing a Vince Gilligan watch. Like anytime a Gil- Gilligan episode comes up, we're saying like, okay, this guy is going to go on to create Breaking Bad. Uh, you know where, where when did and. His first few episodes were kind of just like episodes, and we're seeing kind of his evolution. We're following his career as it's going on. So I, I assume we will be doing something similar with Brian Fuller. Again, this guy will create a couple of shows that will, you know, get some critical acclaim and be canceled quickly, and then he'll create Star Trek Discovery, but then disappear from that. But I guess I liked this a lot more than Star Trek Discovery. Is that a thing to say? Um, yeah, it's fine. I don't have a problem with that. I don't know. Um, you can see, like did... what you like, Richard. I do not criticize people for liking or not liking things. Well, why? You're on the internet. That's what everybody does on the internet. Um, it's we are having a hard time actually talking about the episode, and I so I guess I don't. Well, I mean, the thing is, like. I like this episode, but Seven of Nine is 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 kind of a black box at this point. We we don't know too yeah. much about her, and this episode is is just a way for them to humanize her a little bit, which I think is probably a good yeah. that, that that's a good uh, impulse for them to have. I, I think that Seven of Nine is a character that is could very, very easily go down a road of just being like a Spock or a Data character. Yeah. And I don't think that's what they want to do with her. I don't think they're going to... You know, I, I wouldn't say that Seven of Nine is a character that's like at war with her Borg and human sides because, of course, there really is no Borg side. Like, that's the yeah. thing about it is that the Borg are just a – they're a society, they're a culture, they're not a species. And so Seven of Nine was was obviously – she says in this episode, raised by the Borg. I, I don't know that that's the term I would use, although that's an interesting term for her to use. Yeah. Well, I, you know, one of the – just like the, oh, do you want to copulate scene – a lot of what Seven of Nine is doing is she's just kind of going with what people are telling her to do because why not? Yes, she has some curiosity about it. Yeah, Janeway's telling her, oh, try doing art. Okay, why not? I don't – you know, she is doing a lot of things because she doesn't have a reason not to. Okay, Janeway's asking her to make a sculpture. Yes, it's stupid, but, you know, let me kind of prove that this is stupid by doing it. Uh Neelix is making her eat food because she has to eat food. She doesn't really care. She'll eat nutrient paste, but he's really excited about this and he's telling her to do this. So why the hell not? Like I, she, you know, she doesn't have a reason to not do these things, but in some way she is just kind of biding her time until she gets back to her real life. And well, this, I don't know that I totally agree with that. I mean, I, I I do think that the show has made it fairly clear that Seven is is just she's okay here. Like she is 
Uh, she's resigned to to this now. She doesn't want to go back to the Borg, and that's what well, makes this episode so particularly strange. Well, maybe not going... When I say go back to her real life, maybe just go to the next thing. Like, this is just her, where she is now. At some point, she will be somewhere different, and that's where she wants to be long, whether that's with the Borg, whether that's elsewhere, fine, but, you know, she's just on Voyager now, and that's where she's going to find her next thing. Well, do. I, I want to ask a very particular question, I, okay. and, I, and I think and you'll know why I'm asking this, because the, the entire premise of Seven of Nine's characters, that she was a human who was assimilated by the Borg at a very young age, I think seven or eight years old, so, you know, she was, she had language, she had some schooling, um, you know, she, she was invested in her emotions and, and she was, you know, had, had some memories, but I don't think by any stretch of the imagination, you would say that she was a fully formed person at that age. Yeah. And, you know, then it's what, 20, 25 years later, let's say, let's say she's 30 years old now. Um, I don't know exactly how old she's supposed uh, to be. 18 years, they said it. There, there you go. Yeah, so years. she's yeah. supposed to be, what, what, like 20, really? Just 26 years old? Wow, okay. Um, no, if she's seven years old and it's been 18 years ago, she's like... Uh, she's like 25, 26. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I can do math in my head. Um, that We also don't know because she was obviously artificially aged in some way or there was something going on because she's not a six... You know, she does not have the body of a six-year-old girl at this point. So I don't of know a, how of she a six year What? The Borg don't age, right? I think they do. How could they stop them from aging? I don't know, but because and you know this depends on how canon the Borg baby was in you know, their first appearance in TNG. But um, yeah, okay. Let's say so. She was taking it. I guess it's because we've never seen any Borg children beyond that. And for some, let, let, let's just reasons. Occam's razor yeah. this. She was eight when she was assimilated by the Borg. It's eighteen years later. She's twenty six years old. <laughs> Yes, fine, fine, fine. <laughs> so anyway, so you know, she she certainly was uh, uh, has some memory. She had some personality. She was she was becoming a person, but she was not a fully formed person yet. And then the Borg happened and assimilated her and subsumed her entire individuality. Uh, you know, assumedly, I don't know what the Borg do to suppress emotions, but put a chip in their head, pump them full of some sort of juice. Who knows, right? Uh, so this is a person who needs a lot of psychotherapy and mm. she's not going to get it on Voyager. So I have two questions for you. Number one is, and this is more of a, a, a like a in-universe question, but shouldn't the doctor have psychoanalytical training in his programming? And B or two uh, do you think seven of it? Do you think it's possible for seven of nine to become a a healthy or somewhat healthy person in this environment? Well, number one, remember the doctor's origins as somebody who was just intended to be turned on for. Okay, the doctor's in. You know, the doctor needs a doctor. Or, you know, whatever, like he's incapacitated for what for whatever reason, like he's going to deal with a medical emergency. There's, you know, there's bodies everywhere and we need an extra set of hands like that's the function of the doctor. Uh, He ends up becoming more over the course of it because of necessity and he becomes the full time doctor. But he was intended to be a short burst thing and he was not somebody who was going to be 
seen for week after week after week. Remember, part of the thing of counseling in real life is that you don't just go once and that's it. Like it is basically. Oh, that's my problem. What? I just go to therapy (laughs) once and then I think everything's fine. Exactly. Um, No, yeah, real life therapy is based on having a relationship with your counselor over time and, you know, them and you getting to know you and, you know, that that's a big part of the therapeutic process. Um, Also, keep in mind, Voyager itself was not intended to be in the Delta Quadrant. And so somebody who is in a position where they need major weekly therapy probably would be either you know, probably would be recalled or would be in a different situation, you know. Um I I So so charitably speaking then I think that we can say that 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 when Voyager gets back to the Delta Quadrant and if these emergency yeah. medical holographic programs are still in existence and used, uh they will be beefed up a lot. <laughs> uh, yeah. Because, I mean, because why not, right? Like Yes. Certainly the doctor is going back to what what is the guy who created him his name? Doctor um, Zimmerman. Yeah, Dr. Zim, the doctor and Dr. Zimmerman, Dr. Zimmerman is going to spend a lot of time examining the doctor and, you know, working on improvements and all of that. And I mean, frankly, he is going to revolutionize holography in the Federation because that is a view, that is a purpose for which holography was not intended either. Right, Um, right. Either way. um, so basically, they do have to kind of make do with what they have. So that's Janeway trying to teach her how to relax, how to do art, how to get along with other people. That is Harry Kim, you know, trying, you know, making his weird fumblings towards a relationship. That is uh, Neelix teaching her how to eat and, you know, teaching the more, uh, I don't know, teaching her the pleasures of food and just like things like that, like those kind of things. Um, but like I think a, everybody. But like on a very fundamental level, though, and I, I'm getting kind of reductive yeah. and kind of pushing you on this point, but I no, think no. it's important because this episode raises a lot of questions that I don't know it realizes that it raises. Like, how does Seven of Nine know what she's feeling? How does she know what? How is she not completely emotionally detached from herself? I think well, I, I think she is. Yeah, I was, that's exactly what I was about to say, that she's able to, you know, view these things in this way that she, uh, you know, anytime she comes close, you know, this is the first time we've really seen her emote. I mean, no, that's not fair to say, because when she first uh, gets disconnected, she freaks out a little bit. Like, she she has these outbursts. They're not, I wouldn't quite call them tantrums, but I think she does, I mean, maybe that's one of the areas in which the characterization of seven of nine falls down because she as you say maybe she is at war with herself and you know the human side of her is seven years old really that's that's where that personality kind of stopped she has all of these patterns of behavior from her borg life that are mitigating those and that are tamping those down but she doesn't really have a way of expressing herself she doesn't really know how to express herself and I I I don't know. She's somebody who needs to get like into loud in, into Klingon rock music. You know, she needs. She's somebody who needs to uh, be training with Balana with a batleth. Like this is, I think, what would. And at this, you know, yes, is this the ideal therapeutic environment for her? No, it's not the ideal therapeutic environment for anybody. But I do think everybody on the crew has kind of something that they can teach her. 
I mean, I guess if way. you if you take as a fait accompli that that people in the Federation are just very emotionally healthy and aware, uh, mm-hmm. and that they would be able to to help Seven along, I, I guess you can go with that. But I don't know. I just feel like the Raven answer, you know, raises a very important question yeah. about Seven of Nine's own emotional and mental health, and and doesn't really realize it's doing it because. In a certain sense, this is an awakening episode. The whole purpose yeah. of Seven of Nine, I mean, literally, right? Like, you know, oh, the Borg implants are waking up, and that's why she went off to find this signal that turned out to be the ship that she was assimilated from. Like, that's kind of convenient, but whatever. Um, you know, like, how did her parents get there? Who knows? Like, you know, there's, there are a lot of questions we could ask about this, but they're not really important, and I'm not really interested in, in, in nitpicking the, the plot holes of this episode. Yeah, um, my understanding is just that the experiments that their parents are mentioning of doing are warp experiments, and that's how they got to the Delta Quadrant. Sure. That's where I'm taking it. Sure. Yeah, exactly. It's, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. Um, that, you know, literally, uh, you know, she's having a literal awakening with these Borg implants, and she goes off to, to get this signal. And then, of course, she, she gets put into a situation where she is immediately thrown back into an emotional place that she hasn't been in yeah. since she was assimilated and, and becomes, in effect, emotionally a little girl again. And, and I mean, I think it's, a, you know, it's an ironic pairing, and I'm sure there's a lot you could say about the person that is there to help her through this very emotionally trying time yeah. being Tuvok, because um, I do think that that might be appropriate even. I think that if anybody was going to help seven of nine become less detached from her emotions it might actually appropriately be tuvok in a weird way well tuvok is i believe the only member of the crew who has raised children right and who has had them had had to teach them to handle emotions in a specific way to understand the emotion to see the emotion but not to get mastered by it to control it in that way so and again, Vulcans are not unemotional. Vulcans have extraordinarily strong emotions, just as, you know, just as Seven of Nine would have very strong emotions once she's able to acknowledge them. Uh, she just needs to figure out how to control isn't quite the word, but again, how, 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 well, how she, to, she needs to, she needs a, to know what she's feeling. I mean, that's, yeah. you know, definitely part of emotional detachment is that people don't know what they're feeling and you know i don't think that seven really knows what she's feeling yeah well i mean what what i think is the crux of this episode is that prior to this uh she viewed the annika part of life the first seven years of her life almost as if they didn't exist right like life for seven of nine began when she was assimilated into the borg collective and she is viewing this as an interruption of her life. She is she it's particularly in her first episodes. She is viewing being detached from the collective as being taken from her life. And now she's getting a very different perspective that she did have a life and the Borg collective was the one who took that life away. And again, she you know at the end of the episode she's saying I'm thinking about what other possibilities would have been. What if I we hadn't been assimilated, you know, what would my relationship with my parents have been? How would I, who would I be? What would they have been? You know, what would have happened? What would my hair Where look would like? I have, yeah. You know, would I be wearing this outfit? And the answer is probably not. <laughs> probably not. Yeah, no, I think that's all right. And, and I don't know. I, I, I guess the other question I have for you too is, you know, now that we've seen seven of nine, I mean, this is the, the, I think the eighth episode of the season, right? Um, yeah. Like, 
how are you feeling about her? Like, this is her first like real episode that she's had. And I think it's, it's, you know, I, I, well, I think it's less, it's less a uh, uh, sort of intensive an episode than, than perhaps we thought it was, but it's still, it still raises some questions that I don't know that Voyager is the show that I have confidence that it's going to stick the landing. If you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, number one, I really do wish Kess was still on the show because I think Kess and Seven of Nine make a very fantastic pairing conversationally. I think they have a lot to say to each other, and that feels like a missed opportunity that we don't get to see how they would help each other, you know? I think Kess would be very moved to reach out to Seven of Nine and to work with her and to help her because she was kind of at times the closest the ship had to a counselor. Yeah. Just as we, you know, we said that she was the one who really pushed for the doctor. She is able to see the humanity in people that other on, you know, are, uh, that others are not able to see that. And she would see that core of, 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 of seven very easily yeah i think that's right because i mean certainly uh, seven doesn't need an advocate i mean janeway is her advocate right um and we see that very yeah. clearly in the ways in which janeway it defies the bomar for instance to to go over and and, and find a seven and rescue her from from herself essentially but i i also think that that you're very right that you know if if we go back to the conversation we had a couple weeks ago about Kess leaving the show and and, and why it was uh, Jennifer Lean and, and not uh, you know Gary Wong who left the show, you know I think the answer really we came down on was well it, it doesn't necessarily matter but it's just really a shame that they decided to do yeah. the way the, the way they did because. You know if you if you look at the storylines or the the character moments that Kim and Seven of Nine get. They're nothing great. I mean, they're kind of bog standard sexual hijink stories. Whereas I think you can really see um, the the storylines that Kess and Seven of Nine would get, as you say, are much more emotionally resonant, much more adult. I think you know I could even use yeah. that word. And the, you know, Voyager does have a reputation as being the quote unquote feminist Star Trek, and I will not argue against that i mean i i think that it is probably the most feminist of any of the star trek shows but it probably would have been even more so <laughs> if Cass hadn't left the show yeah i'm less interested in you know harry harry kim and seven of nine do you want to copulate and i'm more interested in Kess taking Seven of Nine to the botany wing and explaining that and, you know, giving her a plant to grow. You know, like that that that's a much more compelling scene for me. Yeah, and I mean it it, it is nice that we have the I mean, frankly, it's nice that we have these these strong female characters in Voyager. I mean, if you think back yeah. to the conversations we were having uh, you know, way back in TNG, back in, you know, I don't know, 1979, we were doing those podcasts, <laughs> um, you know, about uh, uh, Troy and, and Dr. Crusher and how they were friends by default because they apparently were the only two women on the ship and they would go off and do things like space aerobics with each other. Jazzercise. And, yeah, yeah, and have pillow fights and brush each other's hair. Like, <laughs> it, 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 you know, I, I, I don't want to discount the very real possibility that the part of this is Jerry Taylor's influence as well. That, you know, Jerry Taylor is a woman. Yeah. She introduced a very strong female character in the fourth season of the show. And Janeway and Seven of Nine are having a very interesting yes. and dynamic relationship, which is, I think, 
going to have a lot of you know fruits in the future as well. Yeah. Um, one thing I want, I guess there's two points I want to say that, so there, I, I assume there, you know, Leonardo's la, uh, studio is going to be the next kind of location in this. It's interesting that Voyager keeps having these like places that they go. Like first we had the pub in Marseille, then we had Neelix's Hawaiian, uh, you know, luau fest place. And now we seem to have, I don't know, it, it, it it's a... You know, we don't – obviously, there is no ten forward. There is no quarks. And I think it's interesting that every couple seasons they switch it up on that. Again, Voyager is a very different show. But um, they – as the crew's needs evolve, I think they take us to different places for them to relax. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And I mean there there probably is something in there as well that, you know, it goes from Sandrine's, which is a place where the entire crew can relax, to – you know, Neil's yeah. is Polynesian Wonderland, which is a place where all the crew can relax, but perhaps feel a little less comfortable to Leonardo's workshop, which is really just for Janeway and Seven. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, uh, that yeah. that maybe speaks to the narrowing of the show's, uh, uh, you know, creative endeavors as well. But we'll see where that yeah, goes. Yeah, we can also assume that people are still going to the Hawaiian paradise um, and all of that. And, you know, certainly we did see Janeway's hollow novel at the beginning, the Jane Eyre ripoff. Sure. Um, and the other thing is, yes, the Bomar are the latest in the spirit in the uh, series of Delta Quadrant assholes. But I like that they're not behind everything in this episode. Like, they're just kind of dicks. They're paranoid. And maybe because the this is an area of space where the Borg have been or are close to, they kind of have a reason to be paranoid. I mean, from what they see of Voyager, Voyager comes in, demands passage through, doesn't really listen, to, doesn't really respect their uh, stipulations, and let and six a Borg on them. Like as far as they know, like Voyager is the is the space dicks in this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's an interesting way to look at it. That like, you know, and, and maybe this is something to think about with Voyager as a whole, but certainly there's a case to be made for for either side of that there and you know yes we are invested in and believe in the voyager crew because they are the main characters in a star trek show and we like the federation and we like starfleet but i don't know i mean yeah the bomar don't seem that unreasonable to me and they were working with them you know they they are they are certainly delta quadrant assholes but to a certain extent they're the most reasonable ones we've seen in a while I mean, that was kind of the, remember the one episode with the um, with the Kazon back. I think in season two, where there's where they start spreading these rumors that Voyager is the ship of death mm-hmm. and that you know it's cursed, and they begin to point out a lot of really fucked up incidents that Voyager was involved in. And yes, we were there for these incidents. We know exactly why they happened and how they happened and how it was not Voyager's fault. But look at it from everybody else's perspective. You know, Voyager has been involved in some chaotic stuff there are two sides to every story yeah all right well i think we'll leave it there if you have any thoughts on either revulsion or the raven please leave a comment on the post for this episode of the podcast at truckaboutshow.com as we said earlier you can check out our patreon patreon.com slash truckaboutshow check out our reward tiers it also does support our other podcasts tuning in we are releasing our episode on the x-files season four episodes El Mundo Hira and Leonard Betts this week. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, we are on all those places. Truck About Show is our username. 
And as always, leave us an Apple Podcast iTunes review for Truck About. All right, next week we're going to be talking about scientific method and year of hell. <laughs>